Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that the brain operates on the same amount of power as about a 10-watt light bulb. Your brain needs a ton of energy, which is why healthy fats like MCT oil or grass-fed butter are the ideal way for you to fuel your brain. Not only do they have enough calories, they provide sustainable energy, and it doesn't leave you tired like a bowl of cereal. The idea that you should eat something that's low calories per gram instead of high calories per gram simply flies in the face of logic when you understand what your brain is doing. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. We have a great interview today with Ashley Tudor, an entrepreneur, health innovator, and author of a new book called Sweet Potato Power. Ashley comes on the show today to teach you how sweet potatoes can improve your mental and physical performance, as well as how to dial in the optimal amount of carbs for you. But don't worry, this isn't becoming a high-carb show. We close with our biohacker report, where you'll hear a brief summary of two new pieces of research that help increase your problem-solving ability by holding the right posture and maximizing your brain power by avoiding fructose, 
and also using the right kinds of fatty acids for brain function. We've made several changes to the podcast after getting feedback from listeners. First, welcome to Alexis Bright, who just joined the Bulletproof team. She's known for her popular talk, Cultivating a Mindset for Helping You Survive and Thrive During the Zombie Apocalypse and Improve Your Life Today at the Bill Conference, which she helped to co-found. Alexis will be helping answer our listener Q&A. Alexis, I'm excited you're joining the show. How did you get to be Bulletproof? Hey, Dave. I was already interested in improving myself, but it was when my boyfriend brought me a cup of liquid and he said, here, drink this. And I said, what is it? And he said, I'm not going to tell you, just drink it. Sounds a little bit like Alice in Wonderland here. It was totally like Alice in Wonderland. And so I drank it and down the rabbit hole I went. I found your website. I started checking out the Bulletproof Diet. 20 pounds just melted off. I'm in love with Bulletproof Coffee and... Then I invited you to Bill Conference, where you gave a great talk, and it just made it sense to adopt the lifestyle. I was already doing a lot of things anyway, um, meditation, for example, and then adding the M-Wave on top of that made the feedback that I got from the M-Wave help me level up faster in terms of what I was trying to do, what my meditation goals were. And I'm looking forward to doing 20 days of dual end back with Bulletproof Mindware at some point in the future. One of the things that I really found, Dave, was that I liked your principles. Your knowledge aligned with what I'd learned from my dad. So what happened with my dad is he was an attorney. He graduated first in his class at Stanford Law and through a series of medical incidents and a health decline lost everything, including his executive function and short-term memory. And when he could no longer afford his medication and stopped taking the 13 different drugs he was on, he started getting better. And he then got hooked into orthomolecular medicine, uh, studied the life and files of Abram Hoffer, and started using supplements to regain more of his mental faculties. It turns out that he is one of the people that is sensitive to drugs that have anticholinergic side effects. And many of the drugs that they have seniors on these days have anticholinergic side effects, which can cause or you know correlates with uh, age-related decline and, and Alzheimer's and dementia. Much of what I've learned about using supplements to improve performance and health, I've learned from his research, and it happened to align with what you were saying already and what was on the Bulletproof site, so it made a lot of sense to me almost immediately. I have a master's in psychology with an emphasis on marriage and family therapy, and I did a lot of training from a systems perspective. And one of the things I love about Bulletproof is that Bulletproof looks at maximizing human potential from a systems theory, diet, building resilience, improving mental health, increasing performance, and biohacking. And so it's very much in alignment with the ways that I think will help people just get better. Alexis, I'm really looking forward to having you on the show with the Q&A segments and even helping to interview some of the guests. I think it's really great that you've got a well-grounded education in more of the behavioral side of things, and that matches very nicely with a lot of the nutritional and other techniques uh, that we talk about on Bulletproof. So again, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. We're doing something else, too. We're experimenting with a new show format by shortening the listener Q&A. We'll have an additional show focused entirely on listener Q&A every now and then, But for the average show with an interview, this will save you about 10 to 15 minutes of time per episode. Army is going to focus exclusively on covering the biohacker reports. If you like this new show format, definitely let us know. We do this to help you, and we want your input. You guys, our audience, really run the show, not us. 
We've got several announcements for you today. We just released a new anti-aging formula called Upgraded Aging. It's based on a proprietary new formula that targets three different pathways to reduce the effects of aging on health and performance. It's one of the only versions of this supplement on the market today, and I've worked really hard to make sure that it's the highest quality, most powerful one that you can get. It's getting really good rave reviews. We're getting close to selling out. If you're interested, there's a link in the show notes of this episode on bulletproofexec.com. Upgraded aging does something really special and unique that attracted me at first, and that's that it protects your brain from glutamate toxicity, which is one of the things that definitely will make you feel less bulletproof. I've noticed a difference after I take it for a little while because it's a very low-level mitochondrial booster, and it's the only form of it that can be stable. So it's pretty powerful stuff. It's worth checking out. There's also a new series on the Bulletproof Executive blog right now called the Top Personal Upgrade Series. It's an eight-step process that tells you exactly what you need to do to increase your brain power, fight aging, improve sleep, lose fat, gain muscle, and basically be as bulletproof as you can be. It's basically your Bulletproof 101 course. You can find the articles that have been published so far already at bulletproofexec.com upgrades, and more are coming. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter on at BulletproofExec or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BulletproofExecutive. This week, I'm pretty excited because I've been working on a new biohack, and it's kind of a supercharged version of electrostimulation. Coming up in September, we're going to have a conference called the Bulletproof Biohacking Conference. You'll see this announcement on the site very shortly. September. 20th and 21st and 22nd in the Bay Area. And we're going to actually have this technology where you can use it with a world champion power lifter. But I've been using a $15,000 device for the past week or two. And I hook electrodes up to various parts of my body and run stupidly high amounts of current through it. Amounts of current that actually would require anesthesia if it wasn't for a neat little hack that's built into the box. It doesn't exactly feel good, but it causes profound decreases in inflammation and really big muscle growth. It also causes your nerves to form very thick insulation. The myelin sheath on your nerves actually gets better. And if you've heard any of the talks that we've had on the show in the past about coaching and training effects and how you need to do something 10,000 times in order for it to become sort of a muscle memory and to be built into your nervous system. Well, this machine helps you do a movement 500 times a second from your brain's perspective. So you might do one slow squat, but your brain thinks you might have done several hundred slow squats at full intensity. It causes adaptation quickly, but most importantly, it rewires how your brain and your nervous system interact. I've already felt very big improvements, and I just noticed muscles in places I didn't know had muscles. Now it's time for our interview with Ashley Tudor, author of Sweet Potato Power. Ashley Tudor is a design strategist with the Spruce Street Institute, where she works to create innovations in healthcare for doctors, patients, and kids. She's worked with a wide range of Fortune 500 companies on a variety of projects, including envisioning the future of cars, finding new ways for people to invest their money, designing ways to help food companies fight obesity, 
and coming up with new medical devices for primary care physicians. Ashley was named one of San Francisco's top innovators in health in 2010. Aside from her business exploits, Ashley is the author of Sweet Potato Power, a book aimed at promoting what she believes to be one of the healthiest and most high-performance foods you can eat. Ashley joins us today on Upgraded Self Radio to talk about how you can use the power of sweet potatoes to look, feel, and perform better. Ashley, I'm really pleased that you're on the show today. I really appreciated hanging out with you at the Paleo FX conference, and uh, it was really cool for you and Army and me to get to sit down and talk a little bit about sweet potatoes. I wanted to bring some of the things we talked about to our audience today. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Just straight up, how did you get so interested in sweet potatoes? <laughs> I know, it's kind of a ridiculous topic, sweet potatoes. I ended up writing this book because of the intersection of a couple of things that I love. One of them is Quantified Self. Uh, you and I met several, several months ago in the back of a Quantified Self meetup as you were talking about adding butter to your coffee and um <laughs> That's where we originally connected. So I started doing self-tracking early on in the beginning of the quantified self era in Silicon Valley and have been along with that group. So have been doing tests and monitoring and that sort of thing for a while. Sweet potatoes are particularly interesting to me because for over two years now, I've been on a, a diet called the paleo diet, which is pretty low carb. And one of the things as an athlete that I found was, uh, well, some of the issues that I had with the standard Western diet had been solved. It brought a whole slew of other issues like my performance and my athleticism and that sort of thing. So sweet potatoes became a tool for me to both live the diet that I wanted to, which was primarily uh, nature's foods, meats, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, while maintaining some of the peak athletic performance that I was seeking uh, through the, in the things that I loved, CrossFit, climbing, mountaineering, and that sort of stuff. So sweet potatoes became a way in which to talk about personalizing your diet and making your own diet rules. So I took some of my professional background and how do you look at the intersection of business design and culture and applied it to diet. And Sweet Potatoes became the protagonist, uh, a very accessible way to talk about some of the issues that are really exciting right now. Like how do you use tracking to personalize your diet and optimize your health? So that's why Sweet Potatoes. That's an amazing reason, and it's kind of funny because on the Bulletproof Diet, which uh, has been accused of being derived from paleo but is derived from biochemical principles, that some of which were pre-paleo, sweet potatoes are the number one preferred source of carbs on days that you're going to have significant amounts of carbs to come out of ketosis. So I was kind of pleased to see there was a whole book about this that's come out. <laughs> what, what is it about them specifically that's so special from a nutritional perspective? Like, Why are they so good? Well, they're super packed with nutrients, and several cultures, including Japan, use them as a food that can help treat some of the big spikes in sugar, like diabetes. So while we don't use sweet potatoes to cure diabetes in the States, eating them smartly can can help minimize some of the negative effects of carbs. So the huge jumps in blood sugar 
they're naturally really low fructose, so they get processed by every cell in your body instead of going through your liver and being turned into fat. And they're slow digesting depending on how you cook them. So they have a really slow, steady stream of, of energy into your, into your cells. And they're delicious. I mean, they're really delicious. <laughs> and if cooked properly, they taste like cake. So they're, so you, they're an alternative to some of the nastier, more egregious carbs that don't help your brain function very well. I have to say that that um, baked sort of French fry style sweet potatoes are one of my all-time favorite foods. But I have no idea, and I'm sure our listeners are dying to know right now, what is the best way to cook a sweet potato for health versus just flavor? Well, I think the for health, it, it depends what you're going for and what your needs are. And I think one of the great things about sweet potatoes is they can be prepared depending on, on what you're trying to go for. I mean, if you're going for uh, some light carbs, you can just grade them into salads and just use a little bit to help some of the side effects of a super low-carb diet. The less cooked they are, the slower the release. So I personally grade them, but the obviously... You can process your sweet potatoes, like cooking increases the sugar. And then in some of the recipes in my book, there are some limited fructose recipes to replace the sports goos and gels and recovery drinks that have a much faster uptake in your body and should be used in the right circumstances, like during or after exercise. So it really depends on your goal if you're trying to enhance physical performance and incorporating that way some of the faster ways of uptaking. So putting them in the blender and breaking down some of those fiber uh, can be really great. But if you're looking to just add carbs smartly, you can grate it, steam them, or bake them. So pretty versatile. <laughs> I'm already getting hungry. <laughs> Ashley, you just mentioned the Japanese. Are there any other cultures around the world that base a lot of their diet on sweet potatoes? And if so, are they healthy or are they obese? What is their health? Well, there's lots of talk now about safe carbs and safe starches. I personally just got off the plane from China yesterday doing a whirlwind trip around the country. And it, to me, it was amazing to see the reliance on sweet potatoes throughout the country everywhere from street vendors selling sweet potatoes to people spontaneously serving sweet potato chips to it being incorporated into lots of other foods. So I think the Asian cultures tend to rely or have sweet potatoes incorporated quite frequently into their diet. And currently, the Chinese are not fat at all, despite their large consumption of rice. A lot of their stir fries have lots and lots of fat, which slows the uptake of, of carbs like rice and sweet potatoes, which might help. So I'm just trying to think other cultures that the Japanese, the Okinawans eat tons of sweet potatoes. Throughout history, sweet potatoes have been an important crop in the South during the Civil War. Most of the soldiers ate sweet potatoes. A lot of the earliest colonists had a great portion of their diet based on sweet potatoes. And as the society or culture changes and people become more affluent, they stop gravitating towards this really humble food that comes straight from the ground and go to more foods that display status like rice or wheat. 
Uh, and so you see it save populations and groups of people, and then you see it fall quickly out of favor because it's not as glamorous as, say, the wheat culture and the beautiful amber fields of grain. It's interesting how sweet potatoes have kind of dubbed out of favor, as you said. I mean, they taste like cake. I don't know how they could ever go out of favor. And you just mentioned how you know some of these cultures seem to be pretty healthy despite eating you know, a fairly high-carb diet, which is some people would consider to be unhealthy. And chapter three of your book is called Calories Are Not Created Equal. Could you go into why they are not created equal and why sweet potatoes might be an acceptable form? Yeah, I think when it comes to calories, the whole argument about calories has done a great disservice to, to health and nutrition. They're really easy to understand. Uh, they're a simple number, and people will intuitively pick up a package and read the calorie count. But in fact, it's really not the most effective metric. Um, the calories were originated to understand how quickly different fuels burn in steam engines to determine how effective a fuel would be to heat water. And they really fall short when you try to place the notion of a calorie in a really complex system like the body. And so when it comes to thinking about is something healthy or is something not healthy, calories really, really is an outdated metric that we need to step away from talking about and applying towards health. I think for me, when it comes to thinking about what is that equation, it's more complicated than the calorie, um, but it gives a lot more personalization opportunity and that's not just the amount of energy something gives off, but how it affects your hormones, how you can incorporate them. But hormones and inflammation are the big things. So a food can be super high calorie, which in the current rubric would mean that it's not good for you, um, but can also be something that really affects the hormone insulin or negatively affects leptin, insulin being one of the main hormones that affect fat storage and leptin being one of the main hormones that among other things controls appetite. And a food that is low calorie can cause high inflammation. The effect of foods on your hormones and the effect of foods on your inflammation is far more important in terms of how you store fat, which is what a lot of people care about. In terms of your audience, uh, you know, calories don't necessarily give any indication or clue about mental performance or that sort of thing. So it's really the the story of the sweet potato that goes through these different categories and explain what do we actually need to care about and why is the calorie a term that doesn't really serve us in the long run. Ashley, if we were in the same country, I'd, I'd give you a high five right now. Um, <laughs> very well said. The eating a high calorie, low inflammation, low toxin diet uh, certainly worked for me. I, I actually lost a little bit of weight eating 4,000 calories a day and grew more muscles. I often say calories are slightly more useful than grams when it comes to measuring your food, <laughs> but they don't tell you much about what's in it. No, it's absolutely useless. I mean, when I was in China, it was really amazing to me to see the amount of fat in their food. I mean, dish after dish after dish was just slopping with oil. And the issue there is, is that their diet has no sugar. At the checkout, I made it a point to do 
go to some interesting stores like the Apple Store and of course Walmart was on my my list of sightseeing attractions in China. And at the checkout counter, they don't have candy. There's no such thing as candy. They don't even have a candy aisle. And the candy aisle is full of jellies, not chocolates, and really crazy-filled sugar fructose bombs. Um, the checkout aisle was instead full of batteries and condoms and, and things like that. So their culture is very much around eating big meals, but not having any sugar. And any sugar that was present was more to please Western palates. I rarely, if ever, saw anyone eating cookies or ice cream or that sort of thing. So a high-fat diet isn't a bad thing if your carbs are kept to a reasonable amount and can be great for mental performance. We're definitely in alignment there that as long as you've got your fat up high, if you have a few carbs, especially if you're not trying to lose weight, it works really well. But I think in your book, you also mentioned that while all calories are not created equal, all carbs are not created equal either. What are the good carbs and what are the bad carbs in your book? One of the main takeaways for me from the book is just avoid wheat altogether. And I think that wheat becomes one of the more egregious, if not one of the most egregious carbs. Um, for a lot of reasons, some of the molecules in wheat, the proteins, confuse our digestive tract. So when we eat something, we have to take in things from the outside world and somehow get them into the inside world of our body to fuel our cells and, and activity and muscles and all that happens within our body. And what happens with wheat is it kind of sneaks past the barriers of our intestine. It looks really similar to proteins, good proteins in our body. And so when our body finally figures out that we have these enemy invaders in our bloodstream, it has a really hard time telling the difference between the bad guys and the good guys and ends up waging an attack all throughout our body, causing higher levels of inflammation. Before, I would be pretty clean in my diet for six days of the week and have a cheat day. And when I started to kind of play around with how often I cheat, um, I really could tell a difference when I I took wheat out completely, even on cheat days, when before I still had crazy cravings for sugar and crazy cravings for wheat. And so when that cheat day would come around, I would totally fall off the wagon and those cravings would be really hard to suppress. And once I got to the state where I eliminated it all together, the kind of addiction and the, the carb monsterness of me gradually faded away weeks and weeks after. You look like someone who doesn't eat wheat. Uh, we <laughs> uh, we had you know the author of uh, of Wheat Belly on on the podcast recently, uh -huh. uh, you know Dr. Davis, and we had a conversation there about you know clean skin and you know lack of cellulite and, and things like that. Like you look really healthy, and people who go on you know the four hour body style uh, cheat day and you know eat pizza and lasagna and all it takes more than a week to recover it can take six months to recover from wheat exposure if you're sensitive the equations don't balance out and it took me several years of self-tracking to figure out that even once a month wheat was not right for me yeah self-tracking takes a really long time to do it correctly and make sure that you're coming up with the right conclusions and i think that's something that most people have a hard time doing when it comes to self-experimenting and figuring out what's right with their body is to jump to those conclusions themselves. But 
there are a couple of warning signs. I mean, if, if you still have food cravings, something in your system isn't optimized. So if every day at four o'clock you feel like you want something sweet, there's a problem in your diet that you need to address. Your body is trying to speak to you, um, but it's not always speaking to you in the language that comes to mind. So if you're craving a Coke or if you're craving something, some juice, it's probably your body's just craving energy. And in this context, it's craving calories. It just knows that it, that's the fastest way to get it. So if you have cravings or if you have afternoon slumps or if you have mental fogginess, these are all signs that your body isn't really tuned toward being optimized. And I think that, you know, being healthy, it doesn't always look like the perfect six pack abd person, right? There are lots of different body types for healthy. And so it just depends on kind of your epigenetics and what you were exposed to early on and how you're tweaking and, you know, other hormones that are happening in your body too. So it's really interesting that you you brought up the body type thing and and as a woman who eats in the paleo or kind of bulletproof direction the high fat lower carb sorts of things with less toxins less inflammation I hear this in the forums and on the comments on the blog a lot uh, from women who say, well, I, I went on you know, the Bulletproof Diet and yeah, I lost a bunch of weight, but I didn't get ripped abs like all you men. My response to that has always been, well, if you are fertile, and this is the Bulletproof Diet certainly is designed for maximum fertility and you know, good hormone production, but if you're a fertile woman, you probably have curves and not like super lean, tight, ripped abs. Uh, unless you're going for the abs, in which case you oftentimes reduce fertility. Have you come across that in your own self-tracking or in research for your book? Like, you know, how how ripped should a woman be who's healthy versus just really ripped? I think that's an excellent question. Any young lady or any woman who struggles with body image and body weight, and, you know, some of my dearest friends, the main thrust of our conversations are, you know, talking about the scale and what we ate and the sort of stuff. And I think that when we look towards cues of weightlifting magazines or the girls with six pack abs, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One, and most importantly, there are different body types that exist in the world. And you happen to be looking at the 1% of people who don't store fat <laughs> and have very low fat. And chances are when they went to do their cover shoots for whatever self or, you know, fill in the blank magazine, they starved themselves for at least a week and a half and weren't taking in water and then went on diuretics to get rid of even more water. And these are not sustainable or healthy behaviors. Secondly, they went and had post-production Photoshop done on them. So it's not that great for us to compare ourselves to, to print ads, first of all. And then, uh, in a far second, I mean, there are other things to look at when it comes to what does healthy mean. I mean, if you're severely overweight and you have kind of a six-pack belly, that's not healthy. It's also probably not that healthy to have, for a woman, six-pack abs, so just being okay with that is a really hard thing. And certainly for me in my journey, I've always thought that if I dial my diet, if I'm 100% compliant and do this and that, that I'll end up, you know, super spell uh, and 
discover that six pack that I know is there somewhere, but it's really just not the case. And so we have to do our best and have realistic expectations about what our body image should be afterwards. The other thing is one of the issues about the calorie in calorie out argument is that if your calories are under control, you should be your ideal weight. When in fact, there's so much else going on in your body that is really important to look at. So cortisol, how are you dealing with stress? How is your body dealing with stress? Is the exercise that you're doing causing too much stress? So people who are really type A personalities and love to work out all the time and train for triathlons and all that sort of stuff can be causing a lot of stress on their body, which gets in the way of fat loss. So if you're on the treadmill for 45 minutes, you might be doing more damage than you are good. Or if you have a really stressful job and then you go to the gym and add more stress in a super high, bright environment, your body is triggered to store on to fat because that stress equates to running away from lions in the wild world in the way that our genes were programmed. And so that's something that we have to get under control. So in the book, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things. How do you get your insulin under control, leptin, and then cortisol? And how do you test? And how do you know whether or not something like that is an issue for you? And, and that's a problem. What other uses of hormones are there in your book or just in your experience that that are out there for people to increase their performance and just be healthier in general? I mean, are you a bioidentical hormone replacement fan? Uh, what, What else should we be paying attention to? I mean, I think insulin is, when I was working doing consulting for Uh, an innovation firm and helping companies come up with new products and new businesses, one of the questions they would ask again and again and again, or one of their requests, if it wasn't, we want the next iPod, it would be, we want the next 100 calorie pack. So 100 calorie packs have been extraordinarily successful in the market because it's, you can have a very indulgent treat, but it's permissible because it's only 100 calories. And my answer has since become it's a no insulin jumping, insulin neutral foods. So while you probably won't get the cookies, I think one of the main the main things that we should be paying attention to is the effect that food has on that hormone. And there's there's some really easy and cheap ways to test it at home and just get an idea of how your cells are doing listening to the message of insulin, the more effective they are processing that hormone, the healthier you are, the leaner you are, the better mental performance you have. So that's first and foremost. So insulin, super important, and then inflammation and keeping an eye on on inflammation in the body and keeping that down while it's not a hormone, it's still another really important tool for us to see if our bodies are, are fighting the right battles. And if they're fighting the right battles, our bodies are repairing and getting stronger. And if they're fighting the wrong battles, we're getting weaker and we are doing damage. Cortisol super important. So cortisol is a stress hormone. The culture that we live in is super conducive for really high stress. And people will have consistently higher and higher levels of stress throughout the day instead of seeing stress start out high and go down. High caffeine intake affects stress and 
can lead to a really negative cycle of cortisol flip-flop where you're tired in the morning, but your cortisol is really high in the afternoon. So cortisol, and then finally leptin. Leptin is, like I said, the hormone that controls appetite. And if we have too much leptin in our system, it makes us hungrier, our cells stop being able to communicate when they're full and they no longer need nutrients. So we're not told to put down the fork when in fact we've had enough to eat. So just to recap, insulin, cortisol, leptin are super important hormones that we should be paying attention to and should be a part of the dialogue and education. You can, you can test uh, insulin with something like a glucose meter, which is 15 bucks and get so much information, like what foods will work for your specific body, what foods will make you fat, um, how do you eat indulgent meals smartly, and that sort of thing. You make a great point about how it's far more than just about calories and how everything you eat has an effect on your hormones. And one of the other really underrated parts of health is how what you eat affects your gut biome and your gut bacteria. How does eating sweet potatoes affect your gut bacteria and how does eating other foods affect it? I'm so excited that you brought that up. The next experiment I want to do or the next sets of experiments I want to do is to monitor different uh, changes in my gut biome. I have no idea how sweet potatoes affect my gut bacteria other than I'm sure they do everything right. So <laughs> I'm sure they make I'm sure they make the bugs in your belly happy. I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know when I'm done with the experiment. <laughs> in that experiment, I'm really curious. Are you looking at the genes like to figure out what species to see if there's a change in species or are you looking at changes in expression of genes in the species you've already got? Because it seems like that would be a really big difference in gut health. Well, I think right now, and I'm speaking off the cuff here, so if I'm wrong, it's just because I haven't gone super far down this track. I believe it's just looking at the number of species in your gut biome. So if I were to design an experiment, it would be about, I mean, we want more beneficial bugs in our bellies. And it would be about how do you increase the diversity of gut flora and what are some ways to do that? It's definitely going to become more and more popular as we develop our understanding about the beneficial bugs in our life and the organisms that we coexist with and have a symbiotic relationship with. So I think it would be more about what different protocols affect your gut biome, So, which is really important if somebody goes on antibiotics. If antibiotics cure something that is seriously life-threatening, then you, in order to optimize your health afterwards, it's just as important to heal from that really detrimental bombarding and all the good, good bugs in your body. So how do you encourage the right bugs to grow back again and help you digest your food and help you store as little fat as possible and that sort of thing? I think that's going to be an awesome uh, experiment, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing about your results, but not in too much detail. <laughs> I promise, not too much detail. <laughs> now, a lot of people believe that if they're going to eat sweet potatoes, that they need to do you know huge amounts of exercise to, like a steam engine, you know, burn them off. What's your take on matching your exercise to your sweet potato intake? When it comes to sweet potato intake, I think one of the things that people walk away with my book is, is that you should just eat more sweet potatoes. Well, 
that's not really the point of the book. The, po- the point of the book is that sweet potatoes are great and you need to personalize how you incorporate carbs into your diet. So there's lots of talk about how eating carbs uh, within 15 or 30 minutes post-workout will help replenish the glycogen in your cells really quickly without getting a hit of insulin. So that can be a really effective way to, you know, fill up your gas tank without some of the negative side effects of, of eating high carb foods. But, you know, if you are trying to just starting out on your weight loss journey, I think sweet potatoes are a great way to replace some of the more egregious carbs in the diet, like wheat and rice. And there are great recipes that you can sort of transition your way out of some of the more egregious carbs. And then for the group in the middle who is trying to really lean out, maybe sweet potatoes aren't the best thing uh, for you to eat while you're trying to fix your metabolic derangement and, and get within a healthy weight again. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you are having a ketogenic diet, low-carb diet, high-fat diet, they're a great tool to help get the glucose that you need without eating some of the things you don't want to eat. I personally, as an athlete, had a really hard time learning to fuel properly on a really low-carb diet and would, as a climber, would would go climbing and, you know, four hours into a 12-hour day where you need to be super sharp and on it and you need to remain physically strong, I would just run out of gas, which put me in lots of very dangerous, precarious situations for both me and my climbing partners. You know, when I was doing long distance running and ultra marathons, sweet potatoes were a great tool for me to stay away from fructose and and that sort of thing. So I guess that's a really long answer to your question of when should you eat them. Eat them if you're trying to clean up your diet, eat them after a workout, or eat them when you're at a stable body weight and are incorporating carbs, more carbs back into your diet once you've leaned out. It sounds like context really seems to matter here. And one of the coolest parts about your book was how you help people find exactly how much they need to consume. What are some (laughs) of the objective tests people can take in order to monitor their response to carbs and dial in how much they should be eating? Context is so important. And unfortunately, it doesn't translate into pithy pithy sales lines. (laughs) It's not the do this and you'll be skinny diet. I mean, context really matters. And for people who are like the women who comment on your blog, um, it's not just one thing. We all are really uniquely personal. We have unique systems. Different genes are turned on and off. Ways in which we process foods is different. And the way our body responds to that is really different. If you want to optimize and really get that last 5%, you really have to personalize. So personalization is key. And It's something that most people don't take the time to do. Um, I think in terms of going back to your question, how do you know what carbs are right for you? You really have to experiment and do it yourself. So what is your energy like? Rob Wolf always talks about how you look, feel, and perform. So are you lean? If you're not lean, then you're probably eating too many carbs in your diet. 
Now, there's the rare exception of people who started out very heavy and then stop eating carbs and, you know, get to a set weight, which isn't lean, but they're still eating low carb and they're gaining weight and they're having, you know, they're having to tweak other things in their lifestyle. And perhaps they've turned on some fat storing switches that can't be turned off at some point in their life. So how you look, how you feel, what's your daily energy, what is your mental performance? I mean, long before I ever got into the paleo thing, you know, in the early days of CrossFit, they taught the zone. um, And I really started paying attention to my diet because I would have these horrible mental fogs um, come in in the afternoon and I couldn't figure out what was happening. And, you know, I knew that my brain wasn't quite right. I couldn't eat my way out of it. I couldn't caffeinate my way out of it. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, months into paleo that that essentially went away and never came back. Um, so mental performance and then physical performance. Uh, how are your muscles responding? If there's no snap in your muscles, A, if you're, re- if you're bonking or running out of energy during a, a workout, uh, you don't have enough gas in the tank and you need to smartly add in more carbs or be really smart about how you're engaging and fueling in ketosis. One of the experiments in the book and one of the things that I did was go into therapeutic levels of ketosis, um, which is basically no carbs except through you know proteins and fats and maybe leafy greens, but more as a delivery device for more oil as opposed to getting carbohydrates or nutrients. And it was the most amazing experiment I ever did. And I literally felt like I had rainbow shooting from my fingertips and everything got rosier. I was happier. My mood was stable. I had super amounts of energy. That was really interesting. So and I've known athletes who have been in levels of one of the one of the case examples in the book is of a um, triathlete who trains three hours a day, and he's in therapeutic levels of ketosis as well. And he said, without changing his activity, he's leaned out, he's lost fat around his organs, and he's gotten stronger. But what that takes is something that maybe most athletes aren't willing to do, trying ketosis, therapeutic levels of ketosis, and seeing how you feel, and then adding carbs back from there to come up with a good middle ground. I personally am at the point where I eat very, very, very low carb, use sweet potatoes smartly in conjunction with activity, but most of the time have very limited but high fat diet and find that my mental performance feels best and my my body functions best and I'm happiest when ketones are the fuel and not glucose. It's interesting. It's definitely variable for different people. I have the same experience where being ketosis at least some of the time is, I think, pretty important, especially as as we age, because when you're really young, you can really run on glucose pretty well. Although if you do it before you're seven, you're, you're maybe not have the same brain you'll have later in life if you have more fat in your diet. But it really seems to be quite important at least once a week to be in ketosis. And, and I've chosen after years of self-experimenting like you to be in ketosis at least half the time and probably closer to three quarters of the time just for the, the cognitive effects, the energy, uh, the sleep and all that. But if I do it for weeks at a time, you get those effects from being in ketosis forever, which can be dry eyes and, you know, 
other discomfort. Not everyone gets that, but some people do. So I, I think it's awesome to hear the way you, you know, bolts of lightning coming out of your fingers. It, that's kind of part of the bulletproof effect that I'm going for. That's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that one of my biggest sadnesses with our current medical system is our reliance on medicine to solve some basic problems that can be solved with diet. And our over-reliance on medication or antidepressants is one of them. One of the gentlemen I interviewed for the book was seriously using ketosis as a way to manage very severe depression. And, and it was really helpful for him. And well, he needs to stay in it all the time to get the beneficial effects and is working with his doctor to do that. It's just another tool in our arsenal to increase our brain's ability to do its job. I mean, sugar is a drug and we really need to look at it that way. And when we take too much of it, it's addictive. Um, you start craving it and it messes with your brain chemistry in a really big way, the happiness that you felt after, I mean, it doesn't come for free. And regardless of, of your waistline, it has effects on the way that your, your brain is functioning and the, the chemical cocktail that's happening. And of course, that makes sense that a diet that runs off of solely glucose would lead to a lot of problems with the brain. You know, one of my favorite things from Wheat Belly was talking about schizophrenia and how in some of the hospitals, the amount of schizophrenia decreased during the war because people got rid of wheat and all this stuff. So ketones, they're better for your brain. We were meant to run off ketones. It's the preferred energy source. And you do just fine. And if you can get over the fact that you should eat butter and you should drink full fat cream and you go to other places other than Safeway to go grocery shopping because they no longer carry full fat stuff. <laughs> so It's kind of funny. Um, at South by Southwest, during one of the breaks, uh, I was chatting with uh, the SVP of global marketing for Twitter, and, and I took a stick of butter out of my backpack and just started eating it like a candy bar because I'd been going like all day for, you know, probably 16 hours of fasting. I'm like, I want to eat, but I really don't eat like crap you know, food that's going to have the wrong oils and is going to make me not feel as good. And, you know, the yeah. guy just about fell over, but that's kind of what it takes. You know, if you can tolerate the casein, do the cream cheese. If not, I'm, I'm all over the butter. <laughs> Butter's delicious. Cream cheese is delicious. And as long as you're not eating lots of carbs with them, you're, you can eat them all you want. <laughs> it's, it's a good life. I have to say Yeah, we're, we're coming to the end of the show where we have a question that we've asked every guest on the show. What are the three top recommendations that you would have for someone who wants to be as powerful and high-performing and, and just bulletproof in all aspects of life? So it doesn't have to be sweet potatoes or nutrition or anything else, just the three most important things that you've learned that you think other people would want to know about. Number one, as the great oracle would say, know yourself. And part of knowing yourself is not taking people's word for it and running your own experiments and tests and making sure that your information is coming from a great source. You know, doctors are time-strapped. They don't always have, I don't want to get in trouble here, um, follow your doctors. Caveat, not all doctors are up-to-date on the most current information. So just because they have a stethoscope doesn't mean that you should take what comes out of their mouth as iron rule. And knowing yourself and knowing the tests that you can implore in your body can give you 
a window into knowing yourself. This quantified self movement is so important. And it's just at the beginning, early stages of being the powerful tool that it can be in our lives if people just know how to use them and what to ask for and then how to engage with the data. So it's really exciting. Um, the second thing is to know your food. And I think as our food uh, system changes and the distribution system changes, there's so much political agenda around labeling. There's so much, you know, ridiculous agricultural practices when it comes to the type of industrialized farming for, for meats, um, fish, all this sorts of stuff. It's just, it's really, really, really gross what's happening out there in our food system. And while the food system is, is set up to make us not sick, it isn't making us sick, but it's not making us healthy and it's not set up for optimized health. So the great thing for me about this paleo movement is it's more than just about what to eat or what not to eat. It encapsulates a quality of food that goes into, hey, what your meat eat really matters and where your meat comes from really matters, where your fish lives really matters. And that's about quality food. So going out and getting to know your food suppliers. So that's, you know, local CSA, getting your foods from sustainable farms. That's going to meat producers or local farms who raise different meat is really important. You know, go fishing <laughs> in clean places. Um, and, you know, for me, I took up hunting so that I could be the provider of clean meat and I know what the food that I eat eats and I know where it's produced. And I think that just having that frame helps optimize not only your health, but so much else that's happening. Um, it's shortcuts around food quality and it helps navigate this global food economy that's developing where it might not be as nutrient rich as it once was. And then the third thing, which has nothing to do with anything that my book talks about, is be happy. Take time in your life to not be so busy. And I think that, you know, it's really easy to fall back on uh, external measures for success or that sort of thing and getting stuff done and, and doing amazing things. But I think a successful life is built in little moments. And when we pay attention to the little moments, we are optimizing our health and our happiness and and that builds to a, a beautiful and bright life. So a little tangential, but important for optimizing your health. Happiness is key. You know, I wouldn't call that tangential, at, at least from the, the sort of the bulletproof perspective. I mean, you, you nailed like really the main tenets we're talking about, like listen to your body, <laughs> put good stuff in it and, you know, understand the emotional side of things. So it sounds like your your self-tracking path has led you to uh, similar conclusions and I think really, really good and, and powerful ones. And the happiness is no less important than knowing your food, at least not not in, in my world. So awesome list, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Tell our listeners where they can learn more about your new book and more about you. You can find more about my book, uh, sweetpotatopower.com, or go and read the reviews on Amazon, or check me out on Facebook. And then I am, you can look at my profile on LinkedIn, Ashley Tudor. So 
come and visit, share your stories. I'd love to hear what people are tracking and experimenting with. And, you know, if people go out and try some of these tests in the book, I'd love to see, hear their stories and how they've changed their life for the better. So now, our, yeah. our listeners can do one more thing besides just looking at reviews on Amazon for you. They probably <laughs> could leave a review on Amazon. That's really important for new books like yours. So if if you enjoyed this podcast and you've you've seen the book or you buy it on your Kindle, it would be a really cool thing for you to go out and uh, just leave a review on Amazon so other people can, can hear what you thought. And that really helps um, authors get their books out there. Well, thank you so uh, that, much. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. That said, uh, Ashley, we're going to have a transcript of everything we talked about today, including links to your site on the show notes when we publish the podcast. So people can come to uh, bulletproofexec.com or facebook.com slash bulletproofexecutive, and we'll make sure that they can find you there. Fantastic. And just so our listeners know, we're only accepting positive reviews on Amazon. No negative reviews. (laughs) All right. Seriously, though, just leave a review. We love her book. And Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. Now it's time for our audience Q&A. Great. So our first question is from Johnny. Johnny's a Muay Thai fighter, and he's been in Thailand for the last two years. He writes in, Dave, I wanted to ask your advice. I just turned 31, and as you can imagine, I put my body through a lot of wear and tear with Muay Thai. I also completed two Tough Mudders. I was thinking about starting to do a low dose, maybe two IUs a day, of HGH, human growth hormone. There's so many benefits of it that it will help me, and it seems like the side effects are not a concern to me. Any thoughts? I trust your advice. Unfortunately, shutting down your endogenous or your body's own production of human growth hormone is a really, really risky thing to do for a guy who's only 31. I wouldn't do it. There's some evidence that if you take carefully timed physiological level doses, you might not shut your production down. But man, you've got maybe 100 years of more life if any of these life extension things work out. And you don't want to spend all of that having to shoot up human growth hormone. I don't think the benefits outweigh the risk for a young person unless you test to have problems with IGF-1 or your growth hormone levels. You should see an anti-aging specialist if you're thinking about this, and you should get all of your hormone levels monitored beforehand. I think that's uh, playing with fire. If you're going to spend the kind of money the human growth hormone requires, you're probably better off just taking TA65, which is a very expensive telomere lengthener. That stuff runs several hundred dollars a month, but you probably don't need a high dose. And the kind of rejuvenation you can get from that is also pretty profound. And best of all, if you stop taking it, you won't have turned off your production of TA65 because your body doesn't make TA65. You need to use about four months of that stuff at a time for it to work. There may also be a couple of herbal extracts that do similar things that cost about half as much. You also might consider as a medium or short-term thing just taking high-dose serapeptase for a while. Serapeptase is an enzyme that comes from silkworms, and it breaks down protein. When you take it in the body, it stops clotting. Don't take it before a fight, Johnny, because uh, you'll end up getting a nosebleed more easily because you'll have less of the sticky stuff in your blood. You're unlikely to get internal bleeding from it like you could from aspirin or something, but it does make your blood flow better. The reason you're looking to take it, though, is because it breaks down scar tissue. 
I took handfuls of the stuff at a time, up to 100 capsules a day on an empty stomach. I don't necessarily recommend that. I was dealing with some musculoskeletal pain that I just didn't know how to deal with. It turns out that wasn't caused by adhesions, but I have almost no adhesions, and people marvel. I haven't done any yoga or stretching of any sort in two and a half, almost three years now, other than maybe five soft yoga classes for social reasons. And I put my ankle behind my head on kind of a regular basis, like just to show people how flexible I am. So for a 40-year-old guy who used to weigh 300 pounds, who's 6'4", to be that flexible is kind of unheard of. I absolutely credit this stuff, the serapeptase, with breaking down the adhesions and scar tissue that kept my body from moving as well as it could move. You should start there before you get with the expensive, funky stuff. Great. Our next question is actually sort of a conglomerate of questions. Dave, recently with the ABC Nightline article on you and Provigil and biohacking, there have been a lot of reader questions and curiosities about using this. The big one is how do I know that anything you do in the Bulletproof Diet is real if you take a performance-enhancing drug? And a couple of people have called you a drug addict, which is obviously not true, is it? <laughs> uh well, am I a drug addict? I wouldn't say so. I'm, I'm pretty well addicted to uh, bulletproof coffee, if that counts. But the idea that saying anyone who uses a drug that affects their brain makes them an addict is, well, a little bit short-sighted because the bottom line is there are characteristics of addiction that ProVigil actually just doesn't have. So I'm actually really thankful that ABC Nightline ran that long piece on me. By the way, if you haven't seen it, you can see the link in the show notes on the site. So a few people did say, yeah, I'm a drug addict. It just so happens, though, that my wife is a Karolinska-trained physician who spent time running drug and alcohol addiction clinics. And they didn't include her segment, but the camera crew from Nightline asked her point blank about that. And she said, it's not addictive. There isn't a street price for ProVigil amongst addicts. It doesn't show the characteristics of addictive drugs. So no, it's not addictive, and I'm not an addict. I am a conscious user. Also, I've used ProVigil at doses up to 400 milligrams, sort of the max normal dose, when I started out taking it about a decade ago. Uh, I think nine years is the number. And now I take 100 milligrams a day max, sometimes less. And during my two-year experiment where I only got five hours of sleep a night, I went three months with no ProVigil just to see what would happen. And what happened was... I kept sleeping five hours or less per night, and I kept doing the things that I needed to do, and I kept performing. But the honest truth is that the Bulletproof executive, the whole mindset is, what are the things that work? What are the things that are safe? And what are the things where the risk outweighs the reward? And even in my most Bulletproof state, there is another layer of benefit that comes from ProVigil. It's not like an amphetamine stimulant. I've had a prescription for Adderall to try once. I took it three times and basically tossed it. I can't stand the way that, that stuff makes me feel. So it is less of a kick for me than a cup of good Bulletproof coffee, but it does a few neat things. And if you read the other pieces I've written on ProVigil and the effect it has on people who write and people who do creative things, it is a drug that makes you more like what you are. I noticed also when I meditate, and I validated this with EEG feedback, I can get to higher states of alpha in the front of my brain, which is one of the things you're doing in advanced meditation. 
I get there faster and higher on ProVigil than without it. So this stuff helps my meditation and it gives me basically more focus to do things like help to change the world. From that perspective, I'm very happy that I have it in my toolkit. Does my toolkit work without this one pharmaceutical substance? Hell yeah, it does. And I've gone months and months without it just to prove to myself that it does. So read the testimonials on my site. All of those people are not taking ProVigil. In fact, very few of them are. But they're getting the 20 pounds of weight loss in a month. They're getting things like a new layer of clarity I've never felt before. My brain is finally turned on. I felt all those things too, and I've ramped my dose down from the heavy dose to a low dose. And it's a low optional dose, but one that I prefer. Great. I hope that answers the questions for the listeners that had those types of questions. I know in my experience, generally drug addiction is used to hide from some kind of pain or anxiety that someone's experiencing. Somebody wants to check out of life. You know, there's also the physiological aspect as well. But as far as the mental health piece, like you aren't doing this to check out of life. You are checking into life. You are stepping up to the plate every single time. The other thing I wanted to say is I don't take ProVigil and I probably won't start. And I've noticed so many benefits from going bulletproof, more mental clarity, uh, the ability to handle more balls in the air, so to speak, as well as just generally speaking, being calmer and more focused. So the other thing that I've noticed through all of this and, and how much some of the readers seem to be complaining is that you've been really, really calm. So for those out there that are curious, how is it that you stay so calm while people are getting so riled up about this? All the stuff I write about biohacking and hacking your brain, uh, it, it's just, it's not BS. I went through a seven day, really intensive, difficult EEG neurofeedback process where I was hooked up to an $11 million EEG machine and looked at how to get my brain into the state of someone who spent an hour a day meditating for their entire life. And I managed to reach this advanced Zen state, which is the same state that takes a minimum of 21 years of daily practice to achieve uh, in a form of Japanese Buddhism. So I'm not a Zen master. There's all sorts of things that a Zen master knows and can do that I don't have. But I have the ability to control the inner voice that all of us have. And I've rounded that up with the M-Wave, the heart math technology, which is really profound. It gives me a switch. So I can take a deep breath, and there's a thing I do in, in my heart, actually. And it's a thing like learning to snap your fingers or ride a bicycle. And that thing is turn on happy. So if I catch myself drifting, I catch my ego saying, oh, that guy said something bad about you. He's a jerk. I consciously stop that and I do the little M-wave trick. I don't need to turn the device on. The device just served to teach me this trick. And once you know the trick, it's innate. And so I turn it on and I say, okay. I'm not going to engage with that. I'm going to turn on happy. And what I can do is it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I'm not going to get riled up and upset. And it's not that I'm keeping my anger in check or I'm forcing myself to act calm. It's that I've managed to cut across the fight or flight response that makes you angry. And I've managed to gain conscious control of that through biohacking to the point that I can sit there and you can say the worst things in the world to me and I can look at you and I can actually just not feel my heart racing and not spiking, not you know wanting to strangle you 
because I've mastered parts of my brain in biology that many haven't. And I hope to teach others how because it's not that hard and the benefits are profound across all parts of your life. That's so cool. Definitely one of the things that I've noticed while using the M-Wave, I've actually used it while driving. And when I get to that state where I can maintain heart rate variability in my target areas, like somebody can cut me off in traffic and I'll be able to respond. And I'll notice that little surge of adrenaline, but then I immediately like downregulate and get calm again. And, And so what used to happen before is I would then get agitated and have this whole narrative about like how the other person is a bad person because they cut me off, whatever. And now I'm like, whatever, it happens. And it doesn't do me any good to get upset. The only thing that I need to do is to just respond to the situation and keep myself safe. And that that's what using the M-Wave has helped me do. So great. I look forward to getting to the stage that you're at. Oh, it's funny you mentioned using it while driving. If you want to get an accurate perspective of what's going on in your head, it's very safe to use this while you're driving. You you connect it to your ear, just like a little earbud or something, and you set the M-Wave somewhere out of the way. It has an auditory signal or a little green light you can see out of the corner of your eye. You'll be in a nice green state, and as soon as someone does something like cut you off without signaling, you immediately will see your heart rate variability snaps, and you go back to red. But now you're aware of it, and you can consciously bring it back to green. Before that happened, you would have just gone red and sat there and gone, you know, that son of a bitch. But once you know what it's doing to your body and your stress levels – you're a different person. And I I think it's an amazing practice to do that. And it sort of makes a commute less boring. Yeah, exactly. Traffic is one of the better places to practice just letting go. Alexis, thanks for doing the Q&A section on your very first Bulletproof podcast with me. It's time for our wrap up. If you enjoyed the show today, the best way you can support us is to leave a ranking on iTunes. It helps more people find the show, which can change more lives. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next week. Hi, I'm Army Legg, and welcome to today's Biohacker Report. This is the part of the show where we review some of the latest research that caught our attention. The first study is called Thinking on Your Back, Solving Anagrams Faster When Supine Than When Standing. It was published in the Journal of Cognitive Brain Research, where the researchers wanted to see how posture affects brain function. Scientists have known for a while that certain parts of the brain are activated in response to different signals. The researchers hypothesized that there is less activity in the part of the brain called the coeruleus noradrenic system when lying down. When this part of the brain is activated, you can't solve problems as well. They had subjects solve anagrams when lying on the ground and standing. The subjects who worked on the ground solved problems about 10% faster than those who were standing. The difference was within the standard deviation of error, but after statistical analysis, the researchers concluded it was still significant. This doesn't necessarily mean you need to lie on the ground to solve problems, but it does show that posture and comfort have a large impact on your brain's ability to solve problems at least anagrams. It may be that most people prefer lying down to standing and that comfort was the main factor here. Either way, it's evidence that posture does impact your brain function. If you're trying to solve a hard problem, get through a long report, or concentrate on a project, try standing or sitting and see which works best for you. Now that you've got your brain working, let's look at a study to help your body. 
The name of this study is Dietary Cholesterol and Skeletal Muscle Hypertrophy with Resistance Training, a randomized placebo-controlled trial, although you could also call it Why Egg Yolks Make You Stronger. Here's why. Researchers at Texas A&M University reviewed a study from 2007 that had shown that in elderly men, high cholesterol levels were associated with greater gains in muscle mass. To follow up on these results, the researchers decided to test how different cholesterol intakes affected strength and muscle growth in untrained men aged 50 to 69. The results of this study were published in the Journal of the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology. The subjects were randomized into three groups. One group consumed less than 200 milligrams of cholesterol per day, or 3.5 milligrams per kilogram of lean mass. Another group consumed around 400 milligrams per day, or 7 milligrams per kilogram of lean body mass. The last group got to enjoy 800 milligrams of cholesterol per day, or 14 milligrams per kilogram of lean mass. To change the amounts of cholesterol in each group's diet, the subjects ate varying amounts of egg yolks or egg whites. Both groups underwent 12 weeks of weight training with three sessions per week. At the end of the study, the low cholesterol group was 21% stronger, the medium cholesterol group was 38% stronger, and the group that ate the most cholesterol was 52% stronger. That means the people who ate the most cholesterol were more than twice as strong at the end of the study than those who ate the least on the same strength training program. There wasn't any difference in muscle size, which makes sense because all the groups ate roughly the same amount. The main reason this probably occurred is because cholesterol is needed to form the myelin sheath around your nerves. That's basically the insulation that helps signals get from your brain to your muscles. If you don't eat enough cholesterol or produce enough in your body, you won't form healthy nerve connections, and your ability to recruit muscle fibers will be compromised. There are a few limitations to this study. It was an elderly, untrained men, so it's not clear if the same results would have come in younger, well-trained group of subjects. It's also possible that other compounds in the egg yolks may have played a role in the greater strength gains in the high cholesterol group. Egg yolks are packed with many other nutrients, such as vitamin B12, folate, choline, and antioxidants, which may have also played a role in the greater strength gains. The study was also in free-living people, so they might not have stuck to their assigned diets 100% of the time. Nonetheless, the study still suggests that going on a low-cholesterol diet is not going to help your strength gains, and you may be able to increase your strength by eating more cholesterol. If you're interested in trying this for yourself, some good sources of cholesterol are lamb brains, beef liver, steak, and pretty much everything else that's discouraged by the American Heart Association. Although, you know that advice is not very scientifically proven after listening to our podcast episode number 16 with Chris Masterjohn. If you do decide to try this experiment, be forewarned. It will taste really, really, really good. That's it for today's Biohacker Report. If you want to think faster, try lying down or changing your position. If you want to get stronger in the gym, try adding high cholesterol foods to your diet. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.